This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theatre Company. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, listen to a first-hand account about an illegal operation in the desert near Tumacockery, where amateur fortune hunters used dowsing rods and dynamite in search of a mythical buried treasure. Find out about the history of Jesuit missionaries in the Southwest during the time of Padre Quino's historic journeys. And film essayist Chris DeShiel writes about an enigmatic new nonfiction film called A Shape of Things to Come. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. To most of us, the Sonoran Desert seems like such an enormous and empty place. Almost anything can be projected onto it or into it. The idea that the desert is a place where dreams go to die is balanced by the fact that legends told about the desert can live on for generations. Back in 1962, John Miles was 20 years old, new to Tucson, and in search of an adventure. He found one in an unlikely place, a mobile home park near Miracle Mile. Next, we'll hear about it in Miles' own words, This edition of Archive Tucson was produced by Angus Anderson, oral historian at the University of Arizona Libraries. Well, the legend, I first heard it from this guy, Dix, who who worked at the trailer park. You know, he was a prospector. He was an old man by this time. He was in his 70s, and he said he knew where this treasure was, but he didn't have any money to go looking for it, and the treasure was, I learned that, you know, Father Kino used to exploit the, the native people down there at the mission of Tumacockery because there was a lot of silver there and they, they mined the silver ore. And I guess Kino kept records and they had a pretty good stash of silver. When he was called back to go back to Spain, he was told to bring the silver and gold that he had. But meanwhile, the Apache Indians didn't like the idea of all these so-called Christian Indians that were there destroying the land and they were causing problems. So when Kino got called to go back, he couldn't take this stuff with him. So they hid it west of the mission up there in the mountains. So this guy Dix, you know, he knew where the, where the silver was. He had trained himself and been trained by people with dowsing rods. He put silver dollars on the end of the dowsing rods because silver would attract silver. And actually, it kind of worked, but I was kind of a little skeptical myself. But, heck, I was ready for anything back then. And the old man, we got up there and he showed these rich people. And they, I mean, they were just fascinated. They kind of stupid. I didn't, I, I don't think they ever analyzed anything. But they were paying me $10 a week. I staked the claim for them. Food was supplied. If we found the treasure, I would get, like, one-tenth of one percent. They gave me a Polaroid camera to take pictures of when we we found the, the treasure, you know, and then I was going to be the camp cook. There was an old shack up there that somebody else had built years ago that we took over. 
the old old man and I with some supplies. We we waterproofed it, had a cistern on there for water, and we had a big wood stove to cook on. So I I would make breakfast. We hung the bacon from the rafters of the shack, you know, so it kept the, the skunks and the rodents from eating our food. But, you know, we didn't have enough supplies. It was six miles to the old Nogales Highway, uh, and there was a payphone there at, at Wisdom's Cafe. And if we discovered the treasure, I was to go down there and call these people. And they were all excited when they heard from me. You found the treasure? And, oh, no, I said, no, we're running short of grub, you know, just hard work. You eat a lot. So they left me some cash. So I hitchhiked and went to Nogales, and then I bought all these bags of groceries. So then I hitchhiked back, and then I put all these groceries in these backpacks. And I had one backpack on my back and the other one in the front where this cabin is. You know, it's a short distance from where the treasure's at. And what the old man had me doing, we had to improve our foot trail to get up to the treasure site. And I thought, why Why do we do that? I said, let's find the treasure first and, and then do this foot trail. And he said, no, he said, this is what good miners do. And I said, okay, you know, you're the boss, you know. So we did a lot of pick and shovel work, and the blasting was used for, there were some big boulders around there. We didn't have any mechanical equipment, but we had these four-pound double jacks. It was star drilled by hand to drill holes in, into these boulders. And then you'd have to kind of like pack the dynamite into the hole. You had to be careful. So then you'd light it, and then you'd yell, you know, fire in the hole, you know, and you'd take off and boom, and shatter it into a bunch of little pieces of rock. And it was hard to move even that smaller stuff by hand, you know. So the old man convinced him that, no, the treasure isn't really exactly at this spot. It's over here now. He had his dowsing rod, and he convinced them to get a bulldozer and clean this land off, that this is where the treasure's at. How the hell did that treasure move? I became so upset with the old man because of the treasure not being where we thought it was going to be and all this moving around. I figured I, I got to get away from here, talk to some sane people, you know. I got to experimenting a lot with the dynamite. You know, what can I blow up and what can I blow up, you know. And we put in a total of, I think, seven weeks to make a long story short. You know, we never found it people we worked for were supposed to come up and get us. Well, they didn't show up. I had to call somebody to come get me, you know. I wanted to believe it. And I even said, Father Kino, if I find this place, I'm going to name my firstborn. I'm going to name him or her Kino, you know. To just guide me to the right spot, you know. Going back there in subsequent years, you could still find the area where we worked because it's a total disaster in the mountains there. It caused all kinds of erosion. There's a scar up there, and I feel guilty about it because I was part of this team that did it. I really don't think there's a treasure there, but I would go hunting in that area, and I'd see something in the distance that would catch my eye. Man, I would hike through thickets of whatever to get to it, and I was thinking, hey, Father Keno, is this your treasure? I'm I'm on my way, you know. Let me go there and find this old helium balloon. <laughs>
The storyteller was John Miles. Producer Angus Anderson describes him as one of the busiest octogenarians that he's ever seen, staying involved with many activist organizations. Miles is currently the board president and an active volunteer at the Casa Maria Soup Kitchen. Archive Tucson is an oral history project of special collections at the University of Arizona Libraries. You can find more stories from Tucson's past, including the full interview with John Miles, at archivetucson.com. So, about that hidden treasure. I have heard many stories about Father Eusebio Kino, the Jesuit missionary, explorer, cartographer, and astronomer who founded the San Javier del Bac mission in 1692. But somehow the legend of his hidden stash of purloined treasure, well, that's never come up. So I made a call to the Patronato San Javier and was soon in touch with Father Greg Adolph, pastor at St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic Church in Sierra Vista. He's also the president of the board of the Southwestern Mission Resource Center and member of the Kino Heritage Society of the Diocese of Tucson. Well, we have a long history of treasure hunters who, looking through the ruins or around the missions, are seeking this uh, legendary treasure that was left behind by the Jesuits. And um, when the Jesuits were expelled from the Spanish Empire in this area in 1767, the legend is that the Jesuits didn't have time to get the treasure somewhere else, and so they buried it on the premises or even inside the walls. And so we've got a kind of a long history of, of vandalism connected with these missions and treasure hunters seeking this, this lost Jesuit gold or lost, lost Jesuit silver. Well, with that amount of interest, I can only imagine, Father Greg, you're going to tell me that many such treasures have been discovered over the centuries. <laughs> well, as we try to inform people, the treasure is actually the building itself and the communities that were established. That's the treasure. And when people vandalize these mission sites and um, go looking in the desert for this lost treasure, they're um, really missing the treasure that's there. <laughs> well said. What else can you tell me about this legend and the negative impact that the stereotyping has had upon the efforts of the Jesuit mission? Mark, our history, of course, is written in English, and that reflects an English that is a British point of view in many instances. And the um, development in the 16th century and then into the 17th century of what has been called in Spanish the Legenda Negra, the black legend, is known to historians that from an English historical point of view, anything that is Spanish, anything that is Catholic is suspect and is um, nefarious. And the agents of this terrible Spanish Catholic conspiracy to rule the world are the Jesuits. Rather than viewing the native people as a colonizer or as an exploiter might look at them, can you tell me something about what Jesuit teachings would have told Eusebio Kino about his role and how he would have approached forming a formal relationship with the native people in this region? Well, thank you. That's a great question. Part of the reason the promotion of Padre Kino's cause for canonization is exactly that he is something of a role model 
in terms of engagement with other peoples and other cultures. He was deeply respectful of the natives, and he treated them as equals. Now, the Jesuit approach to missions and to, and to education at that time was, was andragogy. You teach adults as adults. So that was part of Padre Kino's spiritual and intellectual equipping, was that he treated the natives as if they had acquired experience of desert living that was very valuable and could be shared. And that's in contrast to pedagogy, which was used by other missionary orders, specifically the Franciscans, which is to teach everyone as if they're a child. Well, that changes the dynamic very much when you speak to an adult as if they're a child and you look at the other, even an adult, as if they're a child. That limits what you believe they possess of their own life experience to share. That's what Kino brought to it, was this enormous respect for uh, the desert, its peoples, the culture that was here, his willingness to uh, sit and listen to the natives and um, garner the information they had about surviving in this desert. Uh, pretty extraordinary. He was uh, deeply committed to their dignity as human beings and made a very long trip, of course, on horseback to Mexico City to make certain that the laws that were in place would be enforced up on this frontier, that you could not enslave natives and that the taking of slaves was was forbidden. And he was so very much seen as protector of the natives that he was often at odds with the Spanish colonists, particularly those who wanted that cheap labor for ranches and mines, and was in conflict at times with the with the Spanish colonizers. But through all of that, he managed to build bridges of understanding and cultural exchange, not just with food, but with ideas and and. Um, this is why we feel he's in a category of his own as a bridge builder, and especially at a time when walls are going up. We think he's a model for how you how you relate to other cultures, other belief systems, other life experiences, other human beings. Thanks to Father Greg Adolph, pastor at St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic Church, president of the board of the Southwestern Mission Resource Center, and member of the Kino Heritage Society for sharing his knowledge. This summer, the FDA approved the first new medication for treating Alzheimer's disease in 18 years. The development of the drug was made possible by research here at the University of Arizona, which investigated the connection between estrogen and reducing the risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Here to explain is Dr. Roberta Diaz-Brenton. She's the director of the Center for Innovation in Brain Science and a professor of pharmacology and neurology in the UA College of Medicine. I began by asking, with all the research being done on Alzheimer's disease, why did it take 18 years to make this breakthrough? So there are multiple on-ramps to Alzheimer's disease. There is, however, common pathology, and one of those is the buildup of beta amyloid in plaques in the brain. The development of a antibody, a monoclonal antibody approach to removing those plaques has been in the works for many years, probably closer to 20 years. The latest approval is for that type of treatment of removing the beta amyloid plaque from the brain. So why so long? Well, I come back to the complexity. Even though there are common pathologies, 
the on-ramps are different. And our approach has been to address one of those on-ramps, why women are at greater risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Typically, people think because women live on average 4.5 years longer than men, and age is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, and while part of that may be true, what our research has shown is that it's not because women live longer than men. It's because the disease can start earlier in women and midlife in their late 40s, early 50s, when they undergo the menopausal transition. What is key in the menopausal transition that opens the door for Alzheimer's to become part of the pathology? The key that we have found is twofold. One is that there's an energy crisis in the brain. The brain is dependent upon glucose as its primary fuel. And estrogen promotes the conversion of glucose to energy, ATP in the brain. And that ATP energy is required for all functions of the brain including learning, memory, executive function, decision-making, sleep, and the clearance and prevention of amyloid plaque from the brain. So what I'm understanding is that healthy levels of estrogen are actually a defense against the buildup of these amyloid plaques. Precisely. Maintaining estrogen action in the brain is a strategy to prevent Alzheimer's disease. It is not a strategy to treat the disease once the disease has taken hold. It's about preventing. So that's where some of the controversy has come in for estrogen or hormone therapy because it has been used in certain trials, not all, where women were 65 years or older and have been estrogen deficient for a decade or more. And in that particular study from the Women's Health Initiative, there were three women who were at the margins of normal. So in today's kind of clinical landscape, they would have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which is the earliest stage of Alzheimer's disease. So for those women, estrogen therapy was not beneficial, whereas women who had received estrogen therapy much earlier in another study in the Women's Health Initiative, there was a reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. In most of the women who received estrogen therapy after the age of 65, there was no benefit and there was no harm. So essentially, estrogen or hormone therapy is most efficacious for preventing development of multiple age-associated neurological diseases when it is administered during that menopausal transition estrogen can actually be beneficial. And that's the time for women to consider estrogen therapy, not 15 years post-menopause. Our recent study showed that indeed, when women were treated with 
estrogen or hormone therapy, there was a considerable reduced risk, 50 to 60% reduction in risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis and ALS. So it was keeping the brain a well-functioning brain. Isn't taking additional estrogen a common part of many women's supplemental routines? At one point, that was correct. And it, you know, hormone and estrogen therapy was very common. Once the Women's Health Initiative study came out showing that there were these three women who had developed Alzheimer's disease, the utilization of hormone therapy dropped precipitously by about 80%. Now, one of the other reasons why women elect not to receive hormone therapy is not the fear of you know, brain-related diseases, but in fact, their concern of breast cancer. So women have been in the position of having to choose between brain health and breast health. And we have, over the past several decades, really listened to women and gone back to our scientific research and asked the important question, can we protect the brain while also protecting the breast? And in fact, we have a clinical trial of a natural product that we call Phytoserm to address estrogen action in the brain while protecting breast health. And we're about to start that trial, um, well, in early 2022. I spoke with Roberta Diaz-Brenton, Ph.D., Director of the Center for Innovation in Brain Science and a Professor of Pharmacology and Neurology in the UA College of Medicine. We began this show with some thoughts about the vast borders of the Sonoran Desert and the multitude of secrets that it may contain. Here to conclude the show by returning to that theme is film essayist Chris DeShiel. A Shape of Things to Come, a film by Lisa Malloy and J.P. Snydecki, opens with a drone shot of a familiar landscape, the Sonoran Desert. Then we see a man suddenly sit up from his lying down position in the grass. It's an older man with a long beard and the weather-beaten look of people who live outdoors. He has a rifle, which he aims at a javelina, taking the animal down with one shot. He then brings it to a shack, evidently his home, where he carefully butchers and cooks it, sharing the meat with his cat and several hogs. As the film goes on, we witness all the little activities that go into his day, including foraging for plants and herbs in the desert and cultivating a vegetable garden. He also has an old pickup truck that he drives around on errands of one sort or another, and often we see, as neighbors in his little world, border patrol vehicles and drones, fences and surveillance towers. The film doesn't tell us his name. Only in the closing credits do we discover that he calls himself Sundog. We do see that he's a hermit who scratches out a living off the grid. There's no one sharing this life with him. We're not provided with a backstory, nothing about his history or what led up to him living this way. Only from reading about the movie afterward was my sense of the location confirmed. It is the southern Arizona desert, and the closest town is Aravaca. I went into this movie expecting, from what little I'd read, a documentary about this guy. But the term documentary can be limiting as an all-purpose label for non-fiction films. 
Malloy and Snydecki are not documenting things like journalists. They seek to evoke subjective impressions rather than convey information. In other words, this is actually more of an art film, using real people and events to weave a tapestry of sight and sound that connects interrelated ideas. Almost all of Sundog's activities, as he putters around his home or goes out in the desert for hunting and gathering, are performed in silence, or to be more accurate, accompanied by his grunts, wheezes, and other sounds. The austere, matter-of-fact style reflects a kind of tacit unity with the natural world. On the soundtrack, we hear birds and insects. We see a snake, a coyote, and other wildlife. And on top of all that are the human elements. We hear Sundog playing his radio, casually chatting with his animals, and, ominously, the booming sound of jet aircraft flying overhead. The film provides an occasional contrast in a few scenes where he goes into town, checks out books from the library, and spends time sitting in a bar, where he seems out of place but unruffled. The filmmakers don't ask questions. This is all his show. And the few things he does say paint a picture of someone who has rejected society's idea of civilization. In fact, considers it a deadly trap that he must escape. And it's someone who has built his life around alternatives to the mainstream. At one point, he claims that he used to help undocumented immigrants across the border. Gradually, a silent tension is established between Sundog and the official American reality represented by the Border Patrol and the drones and fences. The directors invite us to feel some discomfort. Is Sundog one of those fanatic militia types we've been seeing too much of lately? Well, there's much more of an old hippie vibe, with a dash of paranoia that lends itself to the conspiratorial view. But on the surface, at least, the movie is a purely sensory experience, a visceral expression of a unique worldview, not the detailed portrait of a character observed from the outside that would be a more typical approach. The title, A Shape of Things to Come, is an ironic nod to the 1933 H.G. Wells novel, The Shape of Things to Come, a story presenting a future society that has established a worldwide utopia with no more war, a vision that in hindsight looks totalitarian. The future hinted at in this film is clearly dystopian, a shadow of coming collapse. There's a blur between reality and imagination, as it seems that Sundog is plotting to sabotage a nearby surveillance tower. Now, it's tempting to dismiss all this, but when we look at the way things are really going in the world, especially with the looming climate emergency, Sundog doesn't seem that far off from the truth. The movie culminates in visions. We watch as Sundog carefully captures a desert toad, then proceeds to extract venom from this toad, which he eventually smokes. The hallucinations that result, which the directors playfully attempt to replicate, stand in for the film itself, a quest to leave ordinary ways of thinking behind and enter into new radical forms of experience. This is Arizona Spotlight, and I'm Krista Shield. Krista Shield adds that your best chance for now to see A Shape of Things to Come is as a rental through the Grasshopper Films website. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. 
Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of Arizona Public Media.